Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator from MTV's Hollywood Crush blog, Amy Wilkinson, and tonight's guest authors, Melissa De La Cruz and Allie Carter. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thanks I'm so much. Allie. And I'm Mel. And I'm Amy from Hollywood Crush. Hello. <laughs> so glad you could join us. I think we're going to start with each of you reading a okay. section of your works. And okay. did you want to go first since you have the uh, sure. beautiful iPad I in your hands already? the awesome iPad too. Um, no, no, I can read. I can hold and read. Uh, uh, I think we're going to read from our upcoming books. Uh, my uh, next book in the Blue Blood series is called Lost in Time, and it's coming out this October. Uh, actually, September. They, we bumped up the date, so it'll be out September 27th. And I'm going to read um, from the first, uh, the first chapter, which is really the prologue. Are you guys uh, familiar with Blue Bloods? Yes? All right. Okay. Um, so uh, this is uh, the prologue called Never Say Goodbye in Florence. Skylar did not sleep the entire evening. Instead, she lay awake, looking up at the crossed wooden beams on the ceiling or out to the window to the view of the Duomo, which shone a rosy gold in the dawn. Her dress was a crumpled pile of silk on the floor next to Jack's black tuxedo jacket. Last night, after the guests had left, after cheeks were pressed affectionately against hers in loving goodbyes and hands had blessed and patted her ring in a gesture of good luck, the new couple had floated over the cobblestone streets back to their room, buoyed by the happiness they'd found in their friends and each other, in turns exhilarated and exhausted by the events surrounding their bonding. In the dim light of the morning, she curled her arm through his, and he turned towards her, so they pressed against each other. <laughs> I was like, I, I didn't think I was going to read the, the spicy part, but... <laughs> Um, I need to go, Jack said, his voice still rough with sleep. He pulled her closer, and his breath tickled her ear. I don't want to, but I need to. There was an unsaid apology in his words. I know, Skylar said. She had promised to be strong for him, and she would keep that promise. She would not fail him. If only tomorrow would never come. If only she could hold on to the night just a little longer. But not yet. See, it is still dark outside. It was the, 19 it was the nightingale and not the lark, you heard, she whispered. And then it gets really spicy, so I won't read that in public. <laughs> but you can just imagine <laughs> what went on. Um, uh, Sky, and then Jack leaves, sad. Um, so Sky, <laughs> and then Skylar put away her bonding dress, gently folding it in her suitcase. She was ready to forge ahead, but as she gathered her things, she realized a truth that Jack had refused to acknowledge. It was not that he was afraid of meeting his fate, it was that he would simply bow to it. Jack will not fight Mimi. Jack will let her kill him rather than fight her. In the clear light of day, Skylar grasped the reality of what he was about to do. Meeting his twin, twin meant meeting his doom. It was not going to be all right. It was never going to be all right. He had tried to hide it with his brave words, but Skylar knew deep down he was marching to his end. This was the last night they would ever have together. Jack was going home to die. So, you know, read the rest of the book to see if he does. <laughs> well, I am going to read a little bit from my new book, Uncommon Criminals, which is the second book in the Heist Society series. And so what I'm going to, to read is a, a little section. It is not the actual beginning of the book. Um, it's about two chapters in, and Kat and her good friend Hale, who is kind of her frequent co-conspirator on, um, on all of her heists. I, I did a, a little poll on Twitter. I, like, I, can make, I can read a scene that makes sense, or I can read a scene that has a lot of Kat and Hale. And people were like, we want a lot of Kat and Hale. So that's what we're going to go with. Um, and this is a scene they have just met with a, a couple who has basically come to Cat with kind of a job opportunity. There's an emerald that they really, really, really want her to steal, and Cat knows that it's a bad idea, but she's thinking about it anyway. And so they're here in New York City, and and this is this is a part of probably chapter three of Uncommon Criminals. It didn't matter that it was raining. When Cat and Hale left the diner, they waved Marcus in the long black car away. It felt good somehow to walk in the cold wind with their collars turned up, shivering against the dreary mist. Their thoughts, after all, were on Egypt and sand and curses. They were nice, Hale said. He kept his hands in his pockets but raised his face to the sky, water pebbling on his skin. Yes, was Cat's reply. Nice is refreshing. 
Cat laughed and turned almost automatically onto a narrow street. Yeah, and risky. Uh-huh. And they seem like the sort of people who could really use help. From someone good, Cat offered. From someone stupid. Hale stopped so suddenly that Cat walked past him. She had to turn to see him say, But we're not stupid, are we, Cat? No, of course. So under no circumstances are we going to take this job. Of course not. Cat said, just as the rain turned to sheets, hard and cold. Hale gripped her hand and pulled her onto a familiar stoop and under the shallow overhang of the roof above. She shivered, the wooden door at her back while holding closer, sheltering her, searching her eyes. The windows of the brownstone were black and the street was empty. There were no cars, no nannies pushing strollers or pedestrians jogging home. It felt to Cat as if she and Hale were the only two people in New York City. They could steal anything they wanted. But I don't steal anymore, Cat told herself. Don't steal anything at all. No one's home, she told him. Water clung to the corners of his mouth. We could pick a lock. Jimmy opened a window, she said. You know, I bet there's a hide a key around here somewhere, she tried to tease. But Hale had moved even closer. She couldn't see the street. She couldn't feel the rain. Her passport was in her pocket, and when he pressed against her, she could almost feel the stamps burning, telling the world that she'd been home for, away from home for a long time. Hale's hands were on her neck, warm and big and comforting, right where they'd been when she left. Cat feared she hadn't been gone long enough. Cat, Hale whispered. His breath was warm against her skin as he said, when you take this job, don't even think about stealing that emerald without me. <laughs> so awesome. Amazing. Well, since we're here celebrating young adult authors, I thought a good starting point would be to go back in time a bit, yeah. um, thinking about when you were the age of your you know, primary demographic, what were some of the novels that you really related to and that you really connected with? When we were young, <laughs> which was yesterday. No. <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, I, I read a, a lot of different books. I mean, definitely... Uh, I remember Little Women being a, a huge uh, influence. Joe was a writer, you know, she didn't want to be with Laurie, she wanted to have a career, and she wanted to be a writer. Um, uh, Anne of Avonlea, you know, was bi another big one. Sweet Valley High, <laughs> definitely one of my favorites when I was younger. Um, you know, so all those, and I think Sweet Valley High was the one that made me think I could be a writer because I found out that the writer, Sweet Valley High, was 22 years old, and I was 11, and I thought all writers were either 90 years old or dead. So, you know, 20, somebody 22 who's only 10 years older than me was a writer, maybe I could be one. I had much the same experience. I grew up in Oklahoma, and I remember very distinctly when I read The Outsiders for the very first time. I was probably, you know, 13 on summer vacation, walking through my house with an old beat-up paperback copy of The Outsiders, and I, I lived about an hour outside of the city of Tulsa, and I distinctly remember my dad saying, well, you know she's from Tulsa, right? And I, first of all, at that time, I didn't even realize that Essie Hinton was a woman, and so when I found out that she was a woman who was from near I was from and then when I found out she was 16 when she wrote the book I mean that just did it for me I thought well this is what girls from Oklahoma do is we write novels and then Tom Cruise stars in the movie and then this is just what happens so so I was pretty much set from that point on so what was the first thing you wrote that you remember being genuinely proud of hmm. I remember when I, when I went to college, and it wasn't a book or a novel or anything, but I was able to what they call clep or test out of English 1 and English 2. If your scores are high enough, then you don't have to take kind of the introductory English courses when you go to college. And I remember that, of course, there's a lot of writing along with that test and a long essay. And the essay that I wrote for that test, I remember walking out of that room thinking, that was actually really good. And of course now the university has it, they probably burned it and you know, it's probably destroyed all those old tests you know, from 1993, but I would love to have a copy of that. It's, I'm sure it's not as good as I remember it being, but that was the first time I thought, A, that was really, really fun, just sitting there and writing, and B, I think it might have actually been really good. Yeah, I, I think a lot of writers need a lot of encouragement when they're young, and I remember I was a sophomore in high school, and my English teacher, Mr. Oren, whom I dedicated one of my books to, uh, was such a huge positive influence. Uh, I, I, I wrote a lot of short stories, and I remember in one of them, he wrote, you will be published one day. Oh. And I just, 
you know, I, I mean, I, it really, I tear up thinking about it because I remember taking those words to heart. You know, Mr. Oren said, I'm going to be published one day and I'm going to make that come true. So. And he was right. He was he a was prophet. Right. I know. <laughs> Thanks, so, Mr. Oren. Writers have so many sort of different rituals they go through when they're writing. What are maybe some that are unique to you, whether it be a song you like to listen to or maybe just a way you, you have your space set up? What are some of the things that you like to do when you're sort of in the zone? I have a couple of different things depending on where I am in the process. If I'm doing a rough draft, my process is very different than if I'm doing a finished draft. Um, so I, I, as you, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I spend an awful lot of time at Panera Bread. So I like to go and I have a, I have a little you know, kind of writing t doohickey that I take with me that I can sit there and order some broccoli cheese soup. And if I'm working on a high society book, I'll go on iTunes and I'll get some um, you know, like instrumental music that, you know, old Italian operas or things that, that really remind me of Europe. And I'll sit there and I'll eat my soup and I'll listen to those and I'll, I'll kind of put myself like, I'm not in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'm in Italy. And I'll sit there and I'll kind of soak in that and then I can write the scene. So that's, that's definitely a, a ritual for me. Now, do the people at Panera Bread know what you're doing? They, some of them do. It's interesting, though, because all the different employees like have different theories about us regulars. And so one of them, they, and they all think I'm in college, which makes me feel so super young and awesome. I'm like, yeah, it's finals week. It's tough. I'm Writing cramming. They're like, how's the paper going? It's, it's going well. I'm crossing my fingers that I'm going to get a good grade. So. What about you, Melissa? Uh, I can pretty much write anywhere. I don't have like this ritual. I mean, I definitely need uh, silence, which is my big thing. Although I can, I can, the the the, uh, the background noise that really puts me in the mood to write. I had a day job for nine years, and I would write at my day job at a corporate office. I was a computer programmer, so the soothing sounds of ringing telephones and people on their computers writing code. You know, that's uh, that's I, I miss that, and I don't have that anymore. I would love to go to some office building and be like, can I just sit in a cubicle and write my book? Because that's when I'm the most productive, uh, when I'm not supposed to be writing. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, you both write multiple series, or at least are in the process of writing multiple series. Would you say that you have a favorite series, or is it sort of that thing with a child where you can't say that one is better than the other? Uh, I, I would say right now, definitely Blue Bloods has always been my favorite, uh, you know, Sorry to play favorites, Ooh. <laughs> but I mean, but, but I think a lot of my series now are in the Blue Bloods world. Witches of East End is in the Blue Bloods world, so I kind of feel like I'm not really choosing because it's still in the same universe. Um, but it's the paranormal vampire universe. When I first thought of Blue Bloods, I was just so excited about it. You know, I wrote the whole mythology, I wrote the world, I wrote the characters before I even wrote the you know one page of the book. So, yeah. I find that I'm I'm really I'm, I'm most excited always about whichever book I'm not working on. The grass is always greener. So so if I'm writing a Gallagher Girls book, I'm thinking it would be so much fun just to do a heist book right now. It'd be so much easier. Why I think that I don't know, but I think oh this would be so much easier if I were in third person, or oh this would be so much easier yeah. if I could leave Cami's point of view like I can Cat's point of view. And then w as soon as I'm writing High Society, I'm like oh it would be so much easier if I were just doing Gallagher Girls. I miss Gallagher Girls. So it's you know usually I'm I'm really ready to change when it's time to change over. So so leaving one series and going to the next feels very refreshing sometimes because because you've been been on deadline and you've been doing the rewrites and kind of driving yourself. Crazy crazy to get every little thing perfect and then you get to throw that away and have a fresh start with something new which is always fun and it's fun to write about write the book that's not on deadline right <laughs> so the book that's due you know several months from now that's the one we want to write the book that's due that week oh no <laughs> exactly it's always the grass is always greener and do you ever find yourself getting confused when you're you know writing one of the Gallagher novels perhaps and then you you somehow get into this like high society mode without even realizing what you're doing or is it pretty easy to keep you know the two entities separate it's pretty easy to keep them separate what i do have to watch is because you know i'm writing one series about spies and one series about thieves and there's actually a lot of crossover you know so i'll maybe like ooh it would be nice to have cammy have to break into a bank to get this information i'm like wait is that is that too much like a heist job so i, I have to kind of self edit in that respect but for the most part they're very distinct personalities the 
characters are, and their conflict that they're facing is, is very distinct. So, so in that respect, it's pretty easy to keep them straight. Yeah, no, keeping all the worlds separate for all the books is very easy. I mean, it, it's kind of funny. You, you don't get confused. You create these worlds. You know these characters like they're your friends. So, but what, what is gets confusing, I think, yeah, is like that, like the powers maybe or... You know, maybe like a love triangle, is that too much like Blue Bloods or is this, you know? So you don't want to repeat yourself or your scenarios, you know? It's more a matter of what will people say, that, oh, you keep going to that well, and oh, you've already done that before. So you have to do something totally different. Now, this is very germane to the passages I think that both of you read. What would you say makes a good love interest for a YA novel? What sort of characteristics are you... Do you feel like you return to those characteristics over and over again for different characters? Isn't it just three letters? H-O-T? <laughs> you know? So, uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the hot boys is like... Um, I mean, what I like about Jack is that he's kind of unknowable. He's very mysterious and, you know, he's got a lot of baggage. And I just remember when I was 15, the boys I liked were just complete mysteries, you know? So... I'm the same way. Zach in, the, in my Gallagher Girl series, very much kind of a closed book. He has a lot of dark history in his in his past. Um, whereas Hale is more, um, he's accessible to Cat, but he's also very closed off. And so I think they're both very guarded types types of characters. Probably one of the most common questions that I get is, would you ever would you ever write something from Zach's point of view? And I tell the girls, you probably don't want to know what's going on in Zach's head. Zach is far sexier, girls, if you don't know what's going on in his head. And um, you know, you don't want to hear, oh, you know, my mom is evil and blah blah Took blah. My my, these shoes kind of hurt, and I'm really hungry. I wonder if this cafeteria is having bacon at lunch. You know, you don't you don't want to know about those things. He's, he's, he's hotter as he is, I think. And do you ever find yourself writing a character that you don't like? As a main character or as maybe or, a villain or something? Maybe not a villain, but somebody that I think maybe might be divisive among fans. Mm -hmm. Like some people really enjoy that character, other yeah. people don't. Do you ever find yourself kind of thinking, I don't know if I like this character either. I mean, my, my favorite character in Blue Blood series is Mimi, and she's the villain, and she's horrible. And I, and all, you know, I have a lot of fans who say, I just hate Mimi. And I was like, really? <laughs> I kind of, she's my favorite. But, you know. I think that we have to see it from a different perspective. And I, my least favorite characters are the least interesting characters. And the, even the, ba the bad people, if they're bad in a really interesting way, I, I love that. And, and not just in books that, that I write, but in books that I read. You know, Snape is probably one of my favorite characters in all of, of the Harry Potter series because he's a really complex, dark, crazy dude. And, and that's fascinating to me. So I, I think that even the people that, that you're intended not to like, part of me, I like them because they come with, a, they come with interesting baggage and interesting conflict. And there's, a, I use the term, they have a lot of gas in the tank. They can take me a really long way. And so that's, that's what I'm wanting. Oh, definitely. I, I, I think I struggle more with, with the good characters because it's hard to portray, you know, somebody who's good, you know, without making it boring, you know. Um, you know, when you think of Harry, it's done so well because, you know, while Harry has everything, he, you know, he struggles with, you know, kind of like his friends being jealous of him and then his own kind of ambition. So, Melissa, while you have Lost in Time coming up, you are also working on a spinoff called Wolf Pact? Uh, yes, I am. Is that correct? So yes, what inspired am, you to kind of uh, go the, the spinoff route? And how early mm -hmm. in the process of writing Blue Bloods did you know mm -hmm. that you are going to do that? Uh, I think when I was writing the second book of Blue Bloods Masquerade, that's when I had the idea, because I knew what was going to happen with Bliss. Like, I knew how her story ended, and then I thought, oh, that would be so sad if um, that was the end of her story. And I felt like she want, needed some kind of redemption. And that's when I thought, oh, maybe I'll do wolves, and I didn't want to do werewolves, but I wanted it to kind of go with the whole vampire thing. So I thought, you know, that... Hellhounds might be cool, and it came up with this really cool mythology. And this was, I guess, like, you know, five years ago. So I've been carrying the story for a really long time, and it's, you know, went, gone through a lot of permutations. And uh, the book's almost done, so we're really excited about it. And you also have an adult series that you're starting as well, uh -huh. which is of East End, I think uh, it's called. Yes. Yes. Um, so what are some of the challenges going between young adult novels and just regular adult novels? Are you in sort of like a different headspace when you're writing for adults? Can you uh, be a little sexy? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when I was 
writing my adult novel, I wrote all the sex scenes first. <laughs> and then I had to figure out a way to make them work in the story. So I kind of had to tone myself down and say, just because you're writing for adults doesn't mean it has to be sexy on every page. So, um, And I think I struggled with it a little bit because you know, I'm so comfortable in the YA world, the YA voice. And you know, I thought, oh, maybe I have to put on this different hat, different kind of brain. But in the end, you know, you're just writing books. So it was really just the same as writing a blue Blood's book, you know, just the characters have different issues. Instead of them growing up and finding themselves, you know, they're already adults, so they know who they are, and it's just a whole different set of problems. Right. And so, Ali, as far as I know, you are not a thief nor a spy. Yeah, we know of. <laughs> so, where do you get sort of the inspiration for these grand heists? Are you watching a lot of Ocean's Eleven? What are you doing at home to get, dream up these ideas? I do watch a lot of Ocean's Eleven. Leverage, White Collar, one of my favorite shows. Um, but for the most part, it all kind of stems from, even though I'm writing what I like to call unrealistic, realistic fiction. So, you know, I'm not writing paranormal, but I'm not writing stuff that's, you know, speak or, or things that actually are, are happening or real world issues. Um, but I still like to treat the worlds and the characters as if they are real characters. And so, for example, with Uncommon Criminals, it all started with the idea of this, I, I just saw this woman who would come to Kat and ask her to steal this precious gem. And so I did a lot of research on, okay, who, 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 who would have a claim to a gem but wouldn't actually have, have possession of it? And how could that happen? I thought, well, what if her parents were archaeologists and, and the gem got stolen out from under them? And so where, where would archaeologists be working? Well, they'd be working in Egypt. And okay, what kinds of, of precious gems would the pharaohs have hidden in Egypt? Okay. Emeralds, and you know who's the most famous of all the Egyptian pharaohs who loved emeralds? Cleopatra. And so there's some research that goes into it, and always trying to root it in as much reality as possible. And then when I think about you know how the heists go down, again, I, well, I have the advantage. I get to design, be both the thief and the person who designs the security, which is which makes the job a whole lot easier. But I think the the hardest part about writing a heist story for me is you have to run two different cons. You have the con that you're running through the book and on the characters in the book, and then you have the con that you're running on the reader because you have to have that moment where they think, oh my gosh, they're not going to pull it off. And then they actually hopefully are able to pull it off. So that's probably the hardest thing about it. And you just, you do that by playing lots of what if scenarios. And, and again, trying to go back that if this were real, how would this actually play out and how would this actually happen? And high society has been optioned, correct? So that yes. means that the, the rights to the story have been bought to be made into a film at some point. They have yes. the... They have the, the right to think about it and to work on it. It's kind of like putting the, pro, the book in layaway. You know, they, they have it, but nobody else can take it for a while. And that's with Warner Brothers right now. They so have that. where is that in the process? Is a screenplay being written right now? What's, yes. what's going on with that? Um, Shauna Cross. I don't know if anybody out there saw the great movie Whip It, which is um, written by Shauna Cross. She wrote the, both the novel and the screenplay. And so Shauna was actually hired the night they did the auction. So they, they bought the book from me. That night they got Shauna on the phone, and she went to work immediately on the screenplay. So they've been through several drafts of the screenplay at this point. I hear rumors that they've got a director in mind. I don't know where that stands exactly. Um, according to everybody at Warner Brothers, it's a high-priority project for them. But, you know, Hollywood's a fickle, fickle beast, and you can just kind of cross your fingers and hope. And at this point, things look good, but you never, ever know. Now, do you have any dream actresses in mind to play Kent? No, no. I spend more of my time thinking about who'll play Hale. Blake Lively. <laughs> oh, Blake well, Lively. Tell us. Please tell us. <laughs> well, in my mind, it would be Chris Pine, and then we would meet on the set, and we would fall madly in love. <laughs> Will that actually happen? I, I thinking probably not. But more as more I cast the role of Allie's husband and then plug that into Hale, and so so it's less about casting I, Hale. I think he just got married. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It. I'm sorry, Chris Pine. You can no longer be Hale. Okay. No. And so many fans are clamoring for a Blue Bloods movie as well, but that hasn't uh, happened quite yet. Well, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun saying no to Hollywood. It's really fun saying no, <laughs> because Hollywood, you know, once you say yes, and then uh, we came really close to a TV show, and uh, my head got immense, you know, Un unlike authors 
who, who wait, say, oh, we'll wait to see if it really happens. I believed it was going to happen. You know, I was like, oh, we're going to have to move to New York again. And, you know, we're going to film here. It's going to be. And everybody said for six months, you know, they definitely want this. The CW wants a vampire show, you know, they want to get in in this market, and it, it's going to be Blue Bloods, and you know, everybody was like, yes, 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 and then um, we did the pitch to the network, and then a week later, they passed after all those yeses, and then a week later, we heard they bought The Vampire Diaries, so that show is dead to me. <laughs> that was my time slot, so, um, yeah, so the movies, you know, we haven't found the right take that I like yet, and I'm kind of being a little bit proprietary on it right now because the series is still going on and it's coming to an end. And I think once um, I write the last book, it would be cool, you know, to maybe do that. So, same question: Do you have any actresses in mind for you know, like Skyler or any of the male leads, yeah, which no. are more fun to think about? I, I always feel like, I'll, I know, right? I always feel like I'm going to be so old by the time it happens. I don't, you know, I always say, I would love David Bowie to play Jack, you know? And everybody's like, oh, God, you know? So you're like a cast of geriatric actors. So, you know. That's part of the problem with writing teen and YA properties is by the time, you know, you've got like a 14, 15, 16-year-old actress who's really hot, by the time the movie actually comes out, you know, or, or they're ready to roll, roll cameras, you know, she may be 25 and doing something totally different. And so it's really, really hard to know because the time lag is so, is so long in Hollywood that the people who have movies coming out right now actually made those a long time ago. So the people who are making movies right now, it's, it's like we're out of step with them somehow. Now, the YA community seems so tightly knit. I feel like everyone seems to be friends. Do you rely on fellow authors to kind of give you advice or look over your work, or are you pretty solitary in your writing process? Uh, I, I'm pretty solitary, I, at least with um, my writing processes. I write, my husband and I work on the books together, and because we have such a tight-knit bond already, and it's kind of like, you know, kind of spilled over from our married life, our writing life, uh, we're kind of our own, you know, kind of unit, and then, you know, with the editors. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, but they're definitely, you know, there's a YA community that, you know, plots together and kind of critiques each other's manuscripts, and that's just not been part of my process. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if I would feel that comfortable. It's, it's very hard. I, like, I already have my early reader, and it's Mike, and that's how it goes, and that's how we work. So. I, I do have a few people that I go to, and again, they're, they're people that are not only friends and, and colleagues that I trust, but they're, they're people whose opinions I really, really value. And one of them is Jennifer Lynn Barnes. She has a wonderful book called um, Raised by Wolves, The Sequel Trial by Fire is getting ready to come out. And Jen, she's, she's just a dear, dear, sweet person and a freaking genius. And so she's a great person. I'm the kind of writer who I get really harebrained ideas that are kind of on crack. And I, so I'll call Jen and I'll say, Jen, if, if somebody were to have an evil twin and she'd be like, I love it, do it. You know, and so that kind of gives me the, you know, the power to go forth and, and to try the crazy thing. Because if not, if you're, if you're constantly self-editing and telling yourself, no, you don't really want to go there, then you're also not taking any chances. So, so I do a lot with that. I also really heavily rely on my actual editor. I have a wonderful editor. Her name's Catherine Onder. And I can also email Kat and say, Kat, I've got five different ways I want to do the scene. Tell me which one I do so I don't have to write it five different ways and she'll say you really need to do it this way and and so that's just again kind of helps my decision making process be a lot more streamlined and for the young authors who might be wanting to write in the future what is some of the best writing advice that you've ever been given don't get it right, get it written, is what I like to say. I heard that saying once. I have no idea who originated that quote. But the whole time I was working on, say, my first manuscript, I actually had that written down on a piece of paper and hung it by the computer. Because it's so easy to, to look at a finished book that you love, to say, I want to write a book like Melissa De La Cruz, and you read Melissa De La Cruz's book, and then you read what you just wrote, and it's not as good. Never. <laughs> then... You know, never ever compare your first draft with somebody else's finished draft. And don't worry about getting it right. Worry about getting it written because you can always make it better in revision. I think my advice is more um, 
geared towards if you want to be a published writer. And what I see a lot, um, and I was just doing an interview today, and they asked me what's the best advice I'd ever gotten, and I said, oh, it was an editor, a young editor who rejected my book, but said, you know, maybe you should be a journalist so you can write small pieces. And she said, oh, and this is not actually about that advice. She said, wow, you actually took that advice. And I said, yes, I took that advice. Because a lot of people um, get asked for feedback, and then they say, oh, no, that's not, you know, that, I'm not doing that for my book. And I always listen to criticism. You know, I responded to it, and I tried to learn from it. And, you know, I would change, you know, I would learn and change, you know. And, and that's how you grow as a writer. You know, you've got to respond to the criticism, the feedback, and then take it and make your work better. And don't be so... I, I I would say bullheaded to think that you know um, that 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 doesn't count. So I I read the positive reviews, I read the negative reviews, I try to learn from all all of it and try not to get too big a head or too thin a skin from both. So. And who are some of the authors that you admire now that you kind of look up to as your you know writing and reading and things like that? Probably the best book I've read in the last year was a book called White Cat by Holly Black. And it's amazing. If you haven't read it, immediately go home and download it. It is a genius, genius crime noir thriller novel. And its sequel is Red Glove, which is equally amazing. And I just, I want to write like Holly Black. And as Holly's the kind of writer that I'll be reading something, and I'll immediately email my friend Jen or call somebody up and say, how is Holly so good? And Jen will say, I don't know, how is Holly so good? And so I, I love her as a dear, dear, sweet person and friend. And then I also kind of hate her just a little bit because she's so stinking good. Um, I, I would say I am in the fantasy world because I love uh, J.K. Rowling. I loved Harry Potter, and I, I really admire her as a person, as a, as a writer. Um, I think her books just kind of resonate with that kind of friendship and life, and you just feel like she's such a great person, you know, and just seeing her at the Oprah interview, no. <laughs> you know, looking so sleek, and, you know, like we definitely aspire to that. Seriously, <laughs> Mel and I talk about the, the J.K. Rowling Oprah interview like twice a month. I know. Did you see her arm? Arms. Her yeah. arms looked amazing. That Do you hair. think she's doing Pilates? Those highlights. <laughs> And when you're writing, do you prefer to outline? Do you prefer to just kind of let it flow? What's that process for you like? Um, I outline and you storyboard. I right? storyboard. I, it's an old kind of screenwriting technique. I have these huge whiteboards in my in my office, and so I'll take the big post-it notes that are about so big, and I, when I get an idea for a scene, I'll write it down on that scene and stick it on the board. And you kind of that way. I'm a very visual person, and that way you can move the book around like a puzzle. And so you can say, okay, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. This is all kind of boring. What if I move this up here? And it it works out very very well for me and then I can write notes and arrows and things and go back and circle this and and this needs to work so I try to get a general idea of where the book is going but that's that's about as as, as tight as I go with it because I like to leave a lot of room also for the spontaneous scene you know my favorite scene in high society was a scene I had no idea was going to be in the book featuring a character I didn't know was going to be in the book until I was sitting down writing it and I was like who is this guy and what is cat doing in Warsaw and it's my favorite scene in the book so you just got to go there sometimes uh, I outline because I need to know everything. I'm I'm a control freak, so I control my books. You know, I write the, the world, the mythology, and then uh, I do the series arc for each book. Like each book, I know what the major plot point is. And then for the books themselves, I write about maybe a 30-page really detailed outline, so I know each scene and what's happening. And uh, which is kind of a bad habit because after I've written the outline, I feel like my work is done. Book is <laughs> book is written, and I have to go back in and flush it out. You know, flush it out. Um, and the, the happiest books that I write, the happiest writing experiences, are if I've written the outline and the book just kind of comes out of it organically and it's so easy and it's like, oh, that's so great. It's happened once, <laughs> you know, and mostly what happens is I write out of the outline and I would get halfway through and realize, oh no, this is not the direction, the story is not taking off, and then I have to rewrite, I rewrite the outline, I rewrite the pages, and that's when, and then I just get stuck in this kind of rewriting circle where um, you have to find the story through writing it, you know, which is the hardest, because I like it just to come out of that outline. <laughs> well, so it's now time for us to take questions from you all. You've heard enough from, uh, from me. So who has a question for Allie or Melissa? 
Um, I have a question for both of you, actually. Um, with your series, when you write the first book, do you know what's going to happen in the last one? Or do you figure that out as you go along? Okay. When we write our series, do we know what's going to happen in the last book when we write our first book? No, I don't. With my two different series, they're actually coming about kind of very differently. I think Gallagher Girls is going to follow what I like to affectionately call the Harry Potter model, where you tell one bigger story over several books. So when I was writing, I'd tell you I love you, but then I'd have to kill you. I knew eventually we were going to deal with Cammie's father and with what had happened to him and the mystery surrounding his death. But I didn't have time, frankly, to figure all that out because the book was due. And so I figure that out a lot as I've been writing. With Heist Society, I actually see it being a much more open-ended series. So I don't know if I'm going to write two books in that series or 22 books in that series. I think every book is going to kind of be its own thing. So I don't necessarily have to worry about where the series is going eventually because, because every, every book is going to be able to stand on its own a lot more than with the Gallagher Girls. That's a great question. Yeah, no, I think it's a, the answer is different for each of the series. Uh, with Blue Bloods, I definitely know. I know the ending. <laughs> I've known it now for, I would say, eight years. So, you know, just kind of working towards it. Um, and it is on the Harry Potter model. It's a one big story told through a certain number of books. I kind of changed... Um, my idea for Blue Bloods, how to tell it, because I had this whole prequel trilogy in mind. I was going to do three uh, trilogies, you know, the forward story and then the prequel trilogy and then pick up the forward story again with the last uh, three books. And then, you know, I watched Star Wars, <laughs> the prequel, and I said, oh, that really sucked. <laughs> you know? So I was like, I didn't want to do a prequel trilogy because everybody's going to know what happens in the end. And I wanted it to still be a mystery. I didn't want people to know the ending. So I kind of incorporated the prequel into the books. Uh, and then also, you know, just kind of had a different... Uh, kind of way to tell the story that I wanted. So now we're gonna, I'm going to do seven books instead of nine. And it feels, it feels really good. And I like that we're kind of getting to that ending. But yeah, Witches is also open-ended, so I have no idea how many, um, how many books I'm going to write in that. Uh, and, but Wolfpack, I do know. I have an idea for the ending. I'll, we've, I've known the ending for a while, so yeah. Question fourth row. Oh, okay. uh, hi, thank you very much. Um, my question is about how long does it take you from start to finish to write a book and can you break it down with respect to like conceiving the idea, the first rough draft and then taking the first rough draft down to the final draft? Uh, no, go ahead. I am. I actually just had this conversation with my editor yesterday. We're going to try very, very hard to have a book wrapped every nine months. Sending a book into copy editing every nine months, and so that's been drilled into me every nine <laughs> months. And so, um, it's like delivering. It it's is. Like I'm gestating a book. You know, constantly pregnant with a book. I um, my rough drafts come quick, very quickly. I write them very; they're very rough. They're, you know, it's just me and Panera bread and broccoli cheese soup and people who think I'm a college student. And and I'm, I, you know, you just sit down and every day I have a, goal, a word goal. And so it'll be about 2,500 to 3,000 words, and I have to do those before I can go home at the end of the day. And so that really helps that those rough drafts go very quickly. Rewriting, however, is where it gets sticky because that's a quality and not a quantity thing. And so you just kind of say, okay, I want to see if I can get Act 3 this week. Sometime this week, hopefully Act 3 will come together. And so it usually takes me, my second draft is usually the most time-consuming part of it. And that's, you know, two or three months right there. And then... You'll usually, I'll usually do tighter and tighter edits than as we get closer to finished. So I'll do probably another big long edit and then like a line edit where we're actually going through and saying, do I like the wording of this particular sentence? Do I cut this paragraph? The very sort of micro details. And then we go into copy editing and all of the like book production aspects of it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's like with the idea of conceiving it, you know, it could take a really long time, um, you know, because I like to kind of let things kind of sit uh, in the back of my mind and kind of work on it first before putting anything to paper. But once I have the idea kind of fleshed out, I'll start writing a few kind of notes, um, probably about, you know, I would say maybe a year, you know, and then, uh, and then the notes just kind of coalesce into an outline. And once I know that outline, the outline can take like, you know, three days to write. And then, you know, because my outlines are so detailed, you know, I could write the book probably in 
three months. Two months is probably the shortest. When I was much younger, I used to write 20,000 words in a day, and I could turn out a book, you know, yeah. But that, was, that has not happened for a really long time. You know, now that 3,000 word, word count daily is about right. So I'll kind of look at my calendar, I'll look at the deadline, and I'll just start putting the words on my calendar. Like today, we need to get to this goal, you know, so that, so that I'm on schedule. So I know if I'm lagging behind, you know, and I have to tell my editor <laughs> that the book is late because I can look at it on my calendar. Like if I don't make my word counts, we're not gonna make those dates, so. Um, but yeah, like, it, but it's like, you know, it sounds like, oh, you write a book in three months. No, some books, it takes five years to think of that idea to crystallize it to something that I would actually write on the computer, you know. The writing is like the end for me. Right? It, it, and that's, that's a really good point because the actual act of physical writing is, is part of it. But another bigger part of it is just figuring stuff out. And sometimes the great ideas are the, you know, the ideas that come to you while you're walking your dog or folding laundry or washing dishes or doing something totally unrelated to the work. And so some days when the writing isn't going well, the best thing you can do is step away from the computer. You know, go play volleyball with your friends or go to a movie or something because you've just got to let your subconscious figure out a lot of the important things. I would like to go back to uh, the beginning. How did you go from from writing to getting published? You know, what was that journey? And if I could sneak in an extra question into the nuts and bolts, uh, this is for Ali. How do you do the research for spies? Because she I is tried, a spy. <laughs> I tried to quiz people in the CIA and they yelled at me. <laughs> Seriously, I'll, I'll deal with spy research first. Um, well, A, I write about a very fictional kind of version of spies. You know, the, the true people, the people who found bin Laden are, are not like you see in the movies. You know, it is, it is a far grittier, more, far more boring type of job than what, what you would ever see in a Bond movie. And so I get to write about the more glamorous, kind of fictionalized version of espionage. Um, but there are a lot of wonderful resources. Um, if you have not, if you really are interested in spies, it's worth hopping on a train and going down to Washington, D.C. to the International Spy Museum. I highly recommend that if you're ever in D.C. It is a phenomenal museum. And not only that, but they have this wonderful, wonderful um, gift shop attached to the museum. And they have these, they have like a huge re reference section. And so you, they have like biographies by famous spy masters and tradecraft books. Um, they have a lot of, there are books available that have, you know, they were former, um, like OSS, which is kind of the World War II version of the CIA, training manuals. Um, they have some wonderful things that are basically like private security um, things, like how do you conduct surveillance and things. Another cool resource that I found is if you, if you watch a lot of um, spy or espionage types of movies, for example, um, I can't remember what it was called, there was a sniper movie that, star that um, starred Mark Wahlberg. They actually hire, you know, really, really high-end consultants on those movies. And on the director's commentary or the bonus tracks, they'll have interviews with those folks. And so I've seen the same, you know, I've seen a lot of, like, former um, undercover operatives interviewed on those things. And they, they offer a lot of really good tidbits that I can just say, oh, I will use that, thank you. And you just kind of pick and choose what you want. Um, as far as how, how my road to getting published, it's very, very boring. It's not, you know, I didn't, you know, blackmail somebody or anything. There's really not a huge trick to it. I wrote a book. I, I thought it was pretty good. I, I rewrote it many, many times. I entered it into a contest because I wanted to see if, if I was right and it was actually getting pretty good, and it actually won the contest. So that was kind of my, my sign that, okay, yes, my mother and I and a total stranger <laughs> think this is a decent book. So, so I'm going to try it. And then I started querying agents. And sure enough, Kristen Nelson at the Nelson Literary Agency um, liked it and offered to represent me. And from that point forward, everything you know, worked exactly as they say it does. So, so I was very, very fortunate. And people who say that you need to know somebody who, to break into the publishing business, that's not true at all. There are people who break in that way, but that is not a requirement in the least. 
Uh, no, not at all. I, I found my first agent through a book called The Writer's Market, and I think they're still published, maybe online now. And you, just, you follow the queries. I had graduated from college, and I had a day job, and, which I hated because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write novels. And uh, I sent my novel to about 20 agents. About five of them said, we want to see the whole thing. And because I only write if people want to see it, then I wrote the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I had no novel, really. I, had, I just had five chapters. If nobody liked it, it was not going to be done. Um, and then from there, the first agent I had was the uh, original agent for Auntie Mame. And I'd never even met him. We did all our business on the phone. And so I was like, who is this mystery man? Uh, and he sent it to a bunch of publishers. And uh, they all rejected it. But one of them, who is now the publisher of Riverhead, Jeff Klosky, wanted to take me to lunch. And he said, he took me to lunch. And he said, the first thing he said was, I'm not going to buy your book. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, why are we at lunch? But he said, you know, I think you have a voice. And I think, uh, you know, you just need to learn how to write a book, how to, how to plot, you know, because there's, there's no plot in this book. I was like, OK. Um, and he also uh, suggested I become a journalist so I could learn how to write on deadline, how to work professionally as a writer, um, and also kind of build my name. So I took all this advice to heart, and that's what I did. I went through about five more agents before I found one um, who sold my book. By then I was 27. I felt so old. I felt like I'd been in the business for five years with no novel. You know, I had some magazine articles. And, uh, and she sold my book in a week to Simon & Schuster. And that's kind of when, you know, my career finally started. Um, but there was a lot, a lot of rejection before then. Hi, it's just a random question. Um, where do you get your names from, from the books? I'm just curious. Is it people that you know or baby books or just? So character names, where do they come from? Every yes, no, everything under the sun. Really, every character kind of gets their name in in a different way. Cammy was just always Cammy. I, I knew I wanted a name that could also be a last name because I, I felt very strongly that her mother's maiden name would be her daughter's first name. So I wanted a name that, and I also wanted it to start with the letter C because I like the alliteration of Cammy the Chameleon or something the Chameleon. And so Cammy just Cameron came right out, and that's what it always was. Um, some names I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, some names I was at the um, I was in Salt Lake City at Temple Square going through like all the genealogy things there and I see I saw the name Hale on a family tree and I said and I knew that I wanted the boy in high society to his first name to be a big mystery and he just goes by his last name and I thought ooh Hale is a good last name that could also be called for a first name and so that's where Hale come from everything is just a little bit different a, a few of the names I do sit down especially with my international characters and I'll look up names from certain regions or names from certain time periods to make sure I'm getting something that, that feels very authentic. Um, but for the most part, they just kind of, you know, pull here, pull here, pull there. And somehow, you know, you just kind of know it when you see it or when you hear it. Uh, Skylar's name came from a friend of mine uh, who's a guy. <laughs> his name was Skylar. And uh, I always liked his name because uh, it was pronounced differently from the way it was spelled. And it was this old American name. He came from this old American family. And I always kind of carry this name in the back of my mind. So when I wrote Blue Bloods, which was supposed to be about kind of this New York elite, it was the first name I thought of. And, uh, and then I did a little research and I found out that Elizabeth Schuyler was married to Alexander Hamilton. She came from this really old, uh, rich, um, they were like the, uh, the her family was a from the American Revolutionary War generals. So I thought, oh, that's so cool. So there was so much history behind his name, and I really liked that you couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> I still have a lot of readers. My agent just uh, <laughs> called me and said, so Schuler, and I said, Richard, <laughs> after all these years, you don't know how to pronounce her name. He was really embarrassed, so I'm kind of ribbing him right now. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and it comes from, I do see a lot, I like uh, names that I see in the real world. I always like the name Blythe, from Blythe Danner, but I didn't want to name my character Blythe because I felt like it was so, everybody knows who Blythe Danner. So I thought, oh, Bliss, it's kind of the same, you know, kind of the same feeling. And then, um, yeah, the, some research, you know, when I was writing more of my kind of teeny bopper series, I would look up, you know, what were the popular names. And Ashley was a really popular name. And I felt like I was meeting all these, you know, kind of preteens named Ashley. So I did a series called The Ashleys, where there's four girls all named Ashley. What's the hardest thing for you to write? Action, kissing, killing off characters? 
Yes. Um, what is the hardest thing to write? I think they're all hard in very different ways. Um, for me, action is harder to write because that requires actually thinking about you know the, the, the blocking of where everyone is and oh, well we can't have that guy fall because we need him to be up for over here and oh well, well you know we have to explain how the gun got from that, that scene to skidding across the floor and, and so those are the things that take several drafts and I, I'm usually still tweaking those until the, the very, very last minute to make sure that the action makes sense. And so those are difficult just from a logistical standpoint. Um, I think that the romantic scenes are always a little bit difficult because you want it to feel natural and you don't want it to feel like, oh, it's page 36, it's time to insert, you know, a, a nice boy moment. And so you just want to make sure that those, again, tie in with the, the character's emotional arc because the, the emotional journey is, is just as important, if not more so, than their actual physical journey through the book. And I really always struggle with, you know, the big character changes, the characters leaving, the characters coming, the characters dying. Um, those are things that you just dread. And I have this rule that when my characters cry, I cry. And those makes for some very embarrassing scene days at Panera Bread, let me tell you. And it's just, it's very, very difficult. But you got to go there. You, you, can't, you can't leave it, leave it in, in, the, in the hopper. Oh, I love when the characters cry. <laughs> you know, I, I'm very evil. I like making them suffer. Um, I, I find the same. I think the action scenes are really hard to write just because I kind of have one action scene. I'm like, oh, no, and I use the same words. And, you know, I've just got to rewrite it so it's new and it's fresh and, and still plausible. Um, so I definitely leave those until the very end because I find them very difficult to write. I have no problem with writing the spicy scenes, obviously. <laughs> Started my adult novel with all the spicy scenes. So, um, And uh, I think Raymond Carver said the hardest thing for him was just getting a character out the door. Like just some of the logistics of like getting the characters in a cab or out of the room, you know, or it's just, you know, just making sure that all works, that, you know, they're logical. Yeah. And I really struggle, especially with the Gallagher girls, where every in every book they go back to the same building, they go back to the same classes, trying to say these things in a fresh way that I haven't already used. Like, oh, and then we then we walked up and we in, saw Tina Walters, and how do I describe Tina Walters in a way I haven't already described her five times before? And so, just kind of rehashing old territory in a lot of ways can be the, the simply the most challenging thing of all. Well, I think that's it. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Allie. Thank, Thank you, you, Melissa. Yes. Thank you, Apple. Thank, Thank you, Apple. <laughs>